Welcome to the Artism Podcast, where we explore creativity, inspiration, and the determination it takes to be an artisan. This podcast is for artisans, by artisans. I'm your host, Kathy Duraghi, and I'm thrilled to introduce you to our next guest. My guest today is Kamila Fischbacher, the award-winning art director for the Swiss textile house Christian Fischbacher, who just celebrated its uh, 200th anniversary. Kamila has been featured in Architectural Digest, in Elle, in Vogue, and she is going to be sharing with us her journey as a creative herself, as well as what she's done over the past 10 years to keep innovation and inspiration alive at Christian Fischbacher for both existing clients as well as the new clients that are interacting with their brand for the first time. Hi, Kamila. Thanks so much for joining the Artisan Podcast this morning. Hi, Katia. It's a pleasure to be here. So wanted to chat with you. Obviously, I've followed your career over the years. I wanted to chat with you a little bit about inspiration creativity and determination to continue uh, being a creative and also leading a creative team. Um, You are the art director, correct me if I'm wrong, the art director for Christian Fischbacher, which is a 200-year-old textile and home furnishings company. You all just celebrated your 200th year. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. That was quite something. I'm glad it's over. (laughs) (laughs) I know you had celebrations all over the world. You had events planned in Milan, in Tokyo, in Germany. Can you talk a little bit about just kind of what the theme was for the celebration and how you went about uh, planning that? Well, because it was such a big deal and obviously we knew it was coming, we planned at least a year and a half in advance. So we wanted a celebratory collection as well. So for the 200-year Jubilee collection, we really went back into our own archives, regardless of what was going on in the rest of the world, which normally we're always looking out for trends and seeing how we can interpret it for ourselves. That year, which was actually last year, the 2019 collection, we really went internally and looked into our own archives, um, which included in my case, the the family photo albums from the great-grandfather, but then put it together with sort of archival prints and brought a new collection together. Um, but then I already knew ahead of time what the collection would look like, so that also helped me plan all the de- different events. And we started off in Frankfurt, then we had a party event in Paris, then in Milan, then in Tokyo, and then it culminated with a final um, internal party in our own garden in the summer, inviting all our European staff. So first was with all the clients, and then what's always been important to us is also our own coworkers, or the people who make it possible. Because obviously, a company that's 200 years old, it only gets that old with the people that you work with and that they stay with you over all the years. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So important to make sure that we're taking care of our people. Yeah. And some people have worked for us uh, more than one generation. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's kind of cool. Yeah, that is very cool. And so that was your 2019 200th year celebration. And now you're looking into 2020 and into the future. And I got a glimpse of what your latest collection was. Uh, and I realized that you are 
you've been inspired by Mexico. So your collection is all about Mexico, which is pretty awesome. You're a Swiss company and here you are showing a collection about Mexican patterns and prints. Can you talk a little bit about that and where that inspiration came for you? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, our motto for this year was beyond 200, 201 years of textile expertise. So we did that with a little bit of a smile because obviously leading up to the 200, everyone's like, okay, what are you going to do now? And, you know, for us, it's always an ongoing project. So now we just launched the 201 collection, which, as you said, is Mexico inspired. And already, though, today I sat together with my team to discuss what's going to be the next one in 2021. So we're always at least a year in advance and we're always moving on to the next bits. And so I have to sort of reel it back and think, okay, what was I thinking a year ago around this time, why did it become Mexico? And it's not actually not only Mexico, it was actually sort of Latin America in a broader and then more concentrated on Mexico because I um, was there personally twice in one year with, uh, to a place where I'd actually never been before. And I was just blown away by the colors, the patterns, and then a new way of looking at things that I saw through my experience actually being at a wedding in Oaxaca, um, but also traveling around Mexico. So obviously, as a designer, as an artist, you're, you're always looking around and being inspired by things you see. But it doesn't necessarily mean that, say, the market is ready for that. So the next thing that we do is we always go to these trend seminars that sort of forecast what's going to happen in the next two to three years. So that was already in the air. There's a lot going on right now. Um, we're talking about sort of a, a longing for something less sleek, something a little bit more arts and crafts. And I think that's a general trend that's happening, like the arts and crafts movement about 100 years ago. We're having a similar revival, but with our own interpretation. And I think that's sort of a key thing. So one of the, our main designs is this actually a very modern design because it's an inkjet printed on a fabric, but then the fabric itself is handwoven. But then the aerials we use are totally man-made. It's a handwoven out of polyester and viscose, inkjet printed, but then the design is hand-painted. So it's really like bouncing between hand-painted and hand-woven, but then in the most modern way. And I think that that's kind of the, the transitional look that I'm constantly looking for. I'm always trying to balance between, you know, something that I think needs to last longer and using the newest techniques. Do you think because we are in such a digital world right now and everything is so, I guess everything is online and all can, you know, everything is, uh, has kind of moved away from being tactile where you're touching it and feeling it. Do you think that's going to harking back to this arts and crafts movement and Absolutely. where things are hand moving? Yeah. Unquestionably. And I think that's why I say there's this longing. You also see yeah. a real trend going with people baking their own breads. It's not like you can go to the baker and, you know, or even go to the supermarket that grows squishy stuff. But, you know, actually what people want is something real. And I think part of it is because we spend so much time visually satisfied, but that our hands are almost like being deprived. Different creating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think there, there's a deep desire for that. And also I see that in the materials that we're picking, they have to be very, very soft, but they also need to have body or like bumps or lumps or something that we feel because otherwise we always are just seeing it, let's say on a screen, 
And you can't tell the difference between a really great fabric and, and something that's inferior because they all look good in the right lighting. And I think these are the, that's where there's this sort of movement that wants to have uh, something that has not been, can't be replicated so quickly by a machine. Even though we're using modern techniques, it's kind of funny that we're using these modern machines to make it look as if it was home done mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or we actually have them hand woven. Yeah. Yeah. We bounce between each fabric doing different things, mimicking handmade or actually making it by hand, mm-hmm. but then making it that it is still not a hand wo- handmade fabric because let's say then we have all of the quality problems and you wouldn't be able to, you know, put in the washing machine and wash it or, you know, the light fastness would, it would bleach if you use, let's say, vegetable dyes. There's all these things that we're not willing to compromise on, but we still want to have, on the other hand, something that makes you feel as if it's been made, let's say, by a human and not by a machine. Yeah. It feels like home. Yeah, exactly. We're creating sanctuaries for people. Yeah. Beautiful sanctuaries. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so wanted to also kind of have you expand on this concept of keeping you know 200 years of tradition obviously but how do you keep this fresh and inspired year after year i know you have an incredible team that you work with how mm-hmm. do you keep them inspired where does inspiration come into your group as a whole well i think the the main thing is uh it goes back to actually that a question that someone asked my father-in-law and I overheard him answering. They said, how did you build up a 200-year-old textile dynasty? And he looked at him very confused and he said, by not trying to make it a 200-year-old textile dynasty. Mm. Just look forward. Mm -hmm. At least that's always been our company's philosophy. Every generation always remaking the company and doing new things and not standing still. And I think that's not a frantic thing. That's a positive way of looking at the world. So you're deeply, we are deeply aware of our cultural heritage and the historic heritage of this company and the stability that it brings. And therefore, because it's stable, you have the confidence to jump out or go out on a limb in order to to see what's out there and to do something for it. And I think that's kind of been a key signature of ours is is we've always been pushing the limits and looking for something new. And that already, let's say a good example is... 10 years ago when I started with the first recycled fabrics out of plastic bottles. And there we were really pioneers. And now 10 years later, people are finally asking for it. So thank God you have the, we have the stability of this company that's able to carry on. I mean, how many other brands are able to keep bringing something for 10 years until finally people get how important it is? Yeah, let's talk about Binu. You were definitely at the forefront of when I think you first introduced the PET bottles and converted them into fabrics. You were definitely one of the innovators uh, in the space. Yeah. The fabrics that you've created out of the PET bottles are uh, beautiful velvets and just fabrics that you would never in a million years think that came out of plastic PET bottles. Um, What was the inspiration behind that? And... What it, how is it that you're using that fabric and kind of making a mark in the industry? Well, if you sort of, let's say, go backwards 10 years when I first had the first fabric in my hand, it actually was in the States. Two producers, separate producers showed me this. And unfortunately, both of those producers in the meantime, because this is pre-2008, they both be- went bankrupt. Mm. 
but not without me first starting <laughs> with them to do these plastic bottle fabrics. And I can't tell you why I was inspired. I just was. It just made sense to me. The fabric itself didn't. It was ugly as hell. I was like, oh God, this is ugly. <laughs> but, um, and it was stiff. And I don't know when I first showed it to my designers, that was a tough one because they were just not into it. And it was also leading into being like, okay, how do I get them excited? And I was, a, I was in this case a little impatient because I said, listen, you know, to make a really beautiful silk fabric or a fabric out of cotton, I don't really need you. I mean, their face was like, uh, excuse me. <laughs> you know? I'm like, no, this is your challenge. This is your challenge to make something ugly, beautiful. That's why we need designers. It's like, you know, IBM made great computers, but Apple came along and made them beautiful. Right. So we all wanted him. We made an object of desire. So I was like, that's why you need designers. Otherwise, if it's just functionality, then, you know, we don't need that position. And I think that was a, a bit of a shock for them. But on the other hand, it was my challenge to them. I said, this is my challenge to you. Make this something that we're going to want to have. And uh, it took a lot longer because the yarns were so difficult and all that. And this is, you know, 10 years ago. And then fast forward to, uh, the velvet that you uh, mentioned. So Binu recycled then last year in 2019 in Milan, which is the, the important fair for us in April, we launched the first worldwide, and we are definitely the first in the world to come up with this, which is a velvet made out of plastic bottles that is both suitable for outdoor. So it has very light fastness, light fastness, and is flame retardant. So you can use it for all types of projects. And this was that cherry on top. And this really took a lot of effort back and forth over four years. And that's just being stubborn. You know, just, <laughs> that's <laughs> determined. It's determination. <laughs> just determination. And then not uh, being afraid to pull back and not launch it until it was ready. And that was, that was tough. That was very, very difficult because people were pushing and we need it, we need it. And I was like, yeah, but it's not ready. And now it is ready. And now we're really, really doing well with it. And it kind of took the market by surprise too, because we filled up a niche in a market where let's say everyone thinks every fabric has already been done and we're all just putting on new designs on the same old fabrics. I mean, think about fabrics are probably one of the oldest industries in the world. Pre-industrial revolution, we were hand weaving things. And to so come up with something new is difficult. And but on the other hand, for me, it was it was just something that made sense. I didn't think I was being particularly visionary. I just thought it was obvious. But I realized it wasn't that obvious because it took so long for people to get it, how important it was. So as a creative, I think this is a huge lesson to share because as a creative, especially if someone is being hired to work for another client and to deliver on a particular deliverable, to know when something is ready to be shown versus you know showing it just for the sake of showing it because the deadline is there. You know, yeah. Balancing those two is a, is a big challenge, right? Mm -hmm. When the client says, I want it and I want it now, when do you pull the trigger? When do you know that it's, it's the right time to show? That's tough. That's definitely tough. And if you show it too soon and it's not ready, and so many people don't have the capacity to go beyond an unfinished uh, product, Mm -hmm. You know, um, 
that's such a tricky point. You know, if you show them nothing, then it looks like you're not doing anything. If you show them something that's not quite finished, we've noticed that. Um, sometimes with our designers, when we show the company managers a fabric, we're like, okay, it's this fabric, but it's not this design. Imagine it like this. Imagine it's already dead. Yeah. It's dead they, in the can't, water. they don't have the imagination to see no, through. No, yeah. no. And then it's better if it's possible, obviously, but it's better to postpone it. Mm-hmm until it's actually ready, with the fact of saying, listen, we take this project so seriously that we want to show it to you when it's actually done. And sometimes you have to delay things. Yeah. But for example, if we hadn't, we had delayed it from January until April. So January is our launch now in Paris, and we delayed it to Milan in April. But after that, it would have had to wait another whole year. Oh, okay. That's really tough. And that one I pushed and pushed and pushed. That's the other hand, you have to then stay up all night for three weeks until you get it right. There's a balance between, you know, getting it almost ready and then having to kill yourself to, in order to finish it on time. Because that, that second due date, though first due date, you can push. The second, if you commit to the second due date, you have to get it or wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then obviously for a client, that's not doable. Yeah. And also sometimes the time will just pass because the market won't be ready for it if it's that, that much further out. Yeah. And I now realize four years ago when I wanted to launch it, it would have been too soon. But I didn't know that. I just wanted to bring it. Yeah. But it wasn't ready. And now I realize, well, actually, the market wasn't ready. Because now everyone in every magazine is talking about plastic and recycling. And China just announced today that they're going to get rid of plastic bags completely. I'm like, wow. And also the containers, fast food containers in plastic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's incredible. Huge. And that happened today. So yeah, sometimes you can, you can be too early. And yeah. I've definitely been too early for some things. So you need to find a balance between the two. On the other hand, I have now the credibility that the other companies that are coming afterwards don't because I've been yeah. doing it for 10 years. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, you definitely were, you know, I remember when it was first launched, there was really nothing else like it on the marketplace. Yeah. So yeah. Definitely, you know, that kind of harks back to your, um, I know your why, and your why is <laughs> challenging the status quo. So this definitely feeds into that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and that's just something you can't help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can't I can't help, help myself. I got to challenge this. I so. got to challenge it. Yeah. And yeah. I think the, the main thing is to maybe understand, am I doing it now with the wisdom of understanding what my why is? Am I doing it because it's legitimately challenging the status quo or am I doing it just to challenge the status quo? Yeah. You know, and sometimes it's both. But like for this one, I just, for me, it just, I, it felt right. It just felt right. And I think that says a lot too, is really trusting yourself. I mean, the more experience I become, the more I realize that I should have just trusted myself sooner mm-hmm. rather than, oh, I made, I screwed up here. and I screwed. No, actually, most of the time I, I had it. I just didn't trust enough to, to push for it. But with the Be New, I just did. It's just stronger. It was just, for me, obvious. And I didn't understand why other people didn't see it. Yeah. Well, again, that kind of goes back to the, the challenge, challenge part. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And the thing is, you challenge... You have to challenge because you think it's legitimate. And I do think that using up a raw material, petroleum, and to make yarn and then keep using it over and over again, new virgin petroleum, just didn't make sense to me when we had plastic around us everywhere and we weren't doing anything with it. 
You know, I just was like, why aren't we doing that? And my goal eventually would be that everything we do should be out of recycled polyester. Because it's, it's a challenging, but it's not that hard. All these plastic bags, and now they're just banning plastic bags. Well, that's not really the solution. You know, when we, it has to maybe be biodegradable or something. And we can, we, there's, there's so much we can do if we just put our, our brains to it, you know? And I think the main thing is you have to do is you have to put a tax on, let's say, things that are made out of virgin material so that they cost the same that, uh, that it's recycled, you know? Because that's right now the biggest challenge, at least what I've heard in um, interviews, uh, particularly in America, where it's still cheaper to use uh, normal polyester than recycled, like by far, for whatever, for plastic bags, for fabrics, for this, for that. And I think if, if as a world we then say, okay, we're going to ban it, well, I don't think that's enough. You have to come up with an incentive. Yeah. And I think what about the Benu piece, like the more I think about it is, you know, you took something that was discarded and something that was ugly and unused and you've converted it into something that is really beautiful mm -hmm. and that not only is it beautiful, but it's functional and beyond the functional, it's something that's actually good for you and that, that is a flame retardant fabric. Mm -hmm. So it's yeah. taken something that nobody wanted and turned it into something that is highly desirable. Good job. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I'm really glad that people want it now, finally. Yeah. <laughs> it only took 10 years. Yeah, it only took 10 years. <laughs> oh, and success. Yeah, and you know, there were things in between that weren't that successful. Yeah. Sometimes it, one of the designs, one of my favorite designs, Splash, it was a bit of a shower curtain, but it looked really pretty. But, the, you know, the yarns weren't that much developed. They weren't, you know, which they are now. And that's what's really exciting is being able to be like at the beginning of something, at the forefront of something. And again, as you say, that goes with challenging. So if everyone just keeps complaining, oh, this doesn't work, oh, that doesn't work, I think that's where that was sort of my my why really helped. Well, it was like, okay, well, what does? Let's, why doesn't it work? Let's do it. So beyond the work that you do for, for Christian Fischbacher and your role there as an art director, you're also yourself a photographer and have mm -hmm. been showing all over the world. Uh, you've had shows in New York, in Tokyo, in Hong Kong, in Berlin. And now you're going to be showing in, you're going to show your Egyptian series at a gallery in the Swiss Alps. So it really speaks to your the international nature of, of Kamila. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Talk, yeah. Can you share a little bit about your photography, how you got started, what really drives you and what, where the passion for that comes from? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, w when did I start? I started, I think, in, in high school taking pictures. But then when I went to university, I sort of lacked the confidence in order to really recognize how passionate I was about photography. I think coming from a quite an academic family, it was always like you learn or study about art, but I wasn't necessarily encouraged to do art or to be an artist. And I remember already as a freshman, I wanted to take this photography class, but they wouldn't let me sign up because I wouldn't commit to at least an art minor. And I was like, well, no. So I didn't get to get in the class until my senior year. And then when I did, I it was as if this world opened up to me. 
And I realized just how passionate I was about photography. But it was kind of too late, too, because I was already, already graduating. So I thought. There was always this idea, if I haven't learned it now, there was no time to do it later. Obviously, with, with the years, I realized how silly that is. But anyway, so it's something that's followed me on the side, accompanied me through graduate school, and then when I, um, where I went in England, then I moved on to, to the States, and I took another course and realized, oh, this is still something really interesting me. But as a serious, um, let's say, career move, it really happened once I moved to Japan, where I then started doing studio photography. And through that, started working with models. Through that, started realizing I really, really like to do um, fine art nude photography. So this is something that sort of took off from there. And I got to the level then where I could actually exhibit and then actually ask people for money in order to hang up my pictures. (laughs) So this was an incredible experience for me, but a very, very personal journey because I was much more vulnerable artistically, let's say, or to people's critique because it wasn't my, let's say, paid work, but it was something that I wasn't even sure people would want to pay me to do when I started. And I think that's always the the struggle for an artist is to, you're so dependent on the opinion, in i.e. the payment, <laughs> in order to be able to live, where, you know, let's say if you have a regular paying job, you might be able to create more of a distance. So if someone just tells you, I don't like this, let's say in my normal job, I'm like, okay, fine. But when it came to my photography, it was too personal. So I realized that I didn't really want to make a career out of taking, you know, family portraits. Uh, I think I told you this, but it is what sort of culminated for me. And I realized, okay, there's no way I'm going to do that, was when I was asked to take a family picture, beautiful garden in Japan. And I had everything said and this fantastic changing leaves. And it was very beautiful. And then they all stuck on these Christmas hats, the Santa Claus hats. (laughs) And I was like, oh my God, I'm not taking this picture. And then I realized, well, no, they've paid me. I have to take this picture. And then realized, but I don't want to. And then I thought, okay, well, I need to do the photography, let's say, not as a job that needs to pay, but rather I have my day work as the art director where I can be, let's say, lead a creative team. But at the same time, I still needed to be creative myself. Because after a while, I think I've told you this before, but it was like, when I'm leading a group of creative people, I think it's very, very important to allow them to take off with the idea. And if as the boss, you get your hands a little too dirty, as in you get in there and you want to be part of the team, well, you kind of destroy their creative process because they always need, well, they often would then refer back to you, which doesn't mean that you necessarily have the better idea. It's just that you're the boss. Yeah. You have to allow them to take flight. Exactly. Exactly. But then at the same time, because I'm creative myself, I was frustrated because I was like, well, when do I get to be creative? Yeah. Because otherwise it's almost as if you you have a well and people are just taking out of it, but nothing fills you up, you know? And that's what the photography did for me was, and I, that's why I always kept it so very separate from my work. Now that after 10 years of doing my job or 11, I'm in my 12th year. Wow. That goes fast. Anyway, (laughs) I realized that, no, I can do both. Like I can take parts from my photography and bring it into work. 
because I know my team is also confident enough to say, oh, I like this picture or that picture for, let's say, the purpose of the company. It's still not my fine art photography. I still keep that distance because that for me needs to be completely free of anyone's opinion of liking or disliking it because I don't do it for them. I do it for myself. You do it for you. Yeah, yeah. you're doing it for you. Yeah, yeah. And that's super important. And I think it's also important for the for the listeners to know, uh, kind of talking, you know, what we were talking about before about arts and crafts and kind of just doing things, but with you know, by hand, that your photography isn't digital. You you take no, your no, your pictures no. with a Hasselblad. You can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, this was actually what was so exciting about this. In fact, this uh, Egyptian exhibition that I'm doing is uh, the pictures are actually completely unedited, uh, not even cropped, nothing. And it was, for me, it's sort of proving the skill behind it. Because just pressing a button on a digital camera doesn't interest me. doesn't mean other people can't do it, but it, it's not, for me, the level of craftsmanship. I want to, exactly, I want to be the best at that craft, which is photography. One of my f- most frustrating things is when someone's like, oh, that's a great camera. I bet it takes really good pictures. And I was like, well, yeah, but do you say that too? That's a really great pencil. I'm sure it writes great poetry, you know, <laughs> or that's a really awesome, you know, whatever paintbrush. I'm sure it paints great uh, canvases. Yeah, go ahead and try with with uh, a Hasselblad. If you don't know what you're doing, you're going to end up with like a blank negative. And that's the challenge behind it because it doesn't show it to you uh, until after it's done. And then, yeah, out of my 23 rolls, I think two of them came came back blank. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, because I was pushing pushing the film so much, trying to do something new with them. And then they, but that that's part of it. That was the excitement of it as well. To not know, it's not like opening a package. You don't get this immediate satisfaction, uh, delayed satisfaction, but then really you feel like, okay, I got it right. Or you didn't. You know, that's always the nervous side of things too. But yeah, I, I think... Maybe also you're right. That's something that is this craftsmanship going back to it, even though photography obviously is already looking it through a machine and yeah. not through, you know, drawing. But, um, you know, if I could draw, I would, but I can't. So not at the level that I want. So that's why uh, I was one famous photographer said photography is like painting with light. And that's the way I would like yeah. to approach my picture. Yeah, but I also remember you spending hours upon hours in the dark room and printing your own pictures and really mm-hmm. seeing them come to life. So again, that kind of just takes it a step further, where it is working with your hands. It is putting your, you know, yes. putting your hands in the in the solutions, working yeah. with it. Yeah, there's nothing more exciting than having that image appear. It's magic, and it appears in the dark room, and you see it. I just get goosebumps thinking about it. Yeah, that's awesome. How do you then take that? Uh, you know, how are you? I think just the idea of criticism and the idea of well, some people call it criticism, some people may call it feedback, uh, mm-hmm. whatever you call it, is how do you, as an artist, immune yourself to the feedback that's coming from others when the work is so personal? I think that I draw quite a strong line between, let's say, what I do commercially. So as a, as a job for someone, then, you, then I invite the person's critique or feedback because they're paying me, right? But I also then have a line that I won't cross artistically in my aesthetics, i.e. I. the Christmas hats, 
I think that's so important for an artist too, regardless of what they do from a, you know what I mean? Because in the end, some clients are so pushy for what they want. And in the end, they're not satisfied because they didn't hire you for their own look. They hired you because they like what you do. So at some point you need to sort of stand by that. When it comes to my photography, I do not welcome critique. I have to really, really respect the person artistically before I would even ask for their critique back. And because most people don't have a clue what they're talking about. And it's just their sort of their opinion. I'm like, okay, I didn't really ask you. That's not a necessary a nice thing, but it's also, that's how you stay true to your, to your vision, you know? So I think don't listen too closely. That's my advice. Don't listen to other people. You got to listen to yourself. Because your they, yeah, yeah. And what you find is correct. And if you don't think it's good, keep going until it is. That, you know, it doesn't then give you a cushiony way. In fact, it's harder. I, I'm my own worst uh, critique. But then once I'm happy with something, it doesn't mean I won't listen to other people because sometimes I act like I don't and then it sort of sticks in my head for a bit and I come back and I look and I'm like, actually, they're right. But that is from someone I respect, you know, someone who I, whose eye I respect where I say, okay, yeah, this is a legit, this is a legit critique. But just sort of random people who think that they need to give their opinion on your artwork, you just have to be immune to that. You can't listen to that because they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, that's a great distinction. Feedback, criticism versus opinions. Yeah. Because everybody looks at art through their own. I mean, art isn't the eye of the beholder. So everybody looks at it through their own lens. Yeah. But that, that's an opinion. That's not necessarily a colleague's feedback or an industry expert's. Yeah. I, if you will. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So as you said, with the nudes, for example, people have very strong opinions about male nudes as opposed to female nudes. Well, that's exactly why I continue to do more male nudes, because people had such strong opinions. So Because you're challenged the status quo. And they challenged the status quo. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, did I sell the male nudes? No, not so much. Yeah. But a couple, because there were a few who got it, you know? And that's who I want to sell to. That's another thing. Uh, my, my friend, um, James, he always makes fun of me. He's like, you know, it's not, do you actually allow people to buy your, your photos? I'm like, well, if I don't like them, no. And he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm like, no, I don't want them hanging up. My, I don't want them to hang my picture there. <laughs> he's like, okay, that's insane. I'm like, no, because it's personal. Yeah. And Again, if they have hired me to then do something and I send them the pictures, I do create that distance. I look that it's technically correct. I see that it, you know, aesthetically pleases me, but I don't put my heart on it. Mm. There's a difference. And I think that that's another thing. You can you can do that. You can say, "Hey, this is partly theirs because they commissioned it." That's different, you know, than I decided to take a picture of this nude leg or this bosom or whatever and if someone then says oh i don't really like that i'm like okay too bad you know <laughs> and that's what i think is is an interesting separation which might be helpful i think you've shared such amazing things for someone who is starting out and you know doesn't necessarily have the confidence um, or the experience to venture out and create what it is that you know, they can infuse their heart and soul onto. 
So I'm truly powerful words, I think, for somebody who is just listening to this and is maybe just starting out in their path and in their career. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that you feel you could share with them to give them the confidence that they can fo- go forth in whatever their chosen method of creativity is? I mean, it, it's sort of almost corny, but it is just listen to your own gut. Because if you can't be that wrong, you know? Right, if it's your driver, right? Yeah. That thing that excites you, the thing that feeds your soul, the thing that make, gives you goosebumps, there's, it's some, there's something in it. Because as creative people, we're sensitive and we have our, our sensory things like on high alert. So it might be dissatisfying that other people don't feel it the same way, but that just means maybe you haven't explained it enough. You haven't gotten them, their buy-in, you know? And on the other hand, if you're doing a job for someone don't be so like you can't be arrogant either though you need to listen to critique yeah well in some ways though i think as, a, as an artist especially if you're hired by someone who isn't a creative uh, let's say in the line of work that you know a lot of our artists work in you know, they may be working for a company that does not have a creative team and they may be the sole creative on you know on staff it's almost, in some ways, it is their responsibility to, not to challenge necessarily, but it is their responsibility in some ways to allow people to see things that they've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Guide them. Guide them. Guide them. Yeah. yeah. I think bring up options. And then if you think it's a bad option, like don't show something that you absolutely think is shit and then think, uh, and then they might pick it. You know what I mean? Like show to people and then tell them why it's not good. Like you can teach people. And if you bring them on the journey with you, then you've got them on board. I think that's really, really important too. It's kind of like the same thing with my creative team. I've now come up with a new, let's say when we did Mexico, I didn't walk in and say, hey, everybody just need to let you know we're doing Mexico. That's the theme for next year. Go to it. Of course not. I wouldn't get anything from them that way. Right? So I'm like, hmm, I've been thinking, what do you think? We look at all the books. We've been looking through things. I said, oh, I kind of, I'm kind of getting this feeling for like Latin America and these sort of, like I said, these hand done, these arts and crafts, the colors. And then we kept going through things and then they got really excited and we started looking through these uh, trend books and then we started picking up on themes. So it's, it's part of, we always talk about a creative process, right? So I think that's kind of the advice is don't ignore the process and bring people along on your journey because then you'll convince them. But then remember where you're going because they'll try to sidetrack you. But that's you might, true. You know, but you might then go to a almost better place. Like you still have a vision, let's say straight ahead, but maybe straight ahead is not exactly what you need to do. You need to slightly go to the right. And that's where other interesting creative people can bring you to take some, to make it more. So it's like, it's a, it's a balance between being stubborn and being collaborative. I think it's super important. It is truly a creative process and a collaboration with, especially when you're working for the team, right? Yeah. So every, every voice gets heard that way. So important. And that's one is that you're leading creative people, but I also think if you're in a creative team, but also when you have a client, because they need mm-hmm. to be heard too. Yeah, Exactly. You know, exactly. if you're not listening to them and you're like, no, I know that your, your symbol needs to be purple. And they've told you like forever that their whole theme and everything they're talking about is green, then, then you're not listening. So that's a problem too. So like I said, you gotta, you gotta listen to yourself and your gut feeling, but you have the responsibility to communicate that and get them on board. 
or open yourself up to see where they want to go and go on the journey together. Depends on who you're working with. Yeah, beautifully said. Go on the journey together. Mm. Which brings me to the final thing I wanted to ask you, and that is about a journey, uh, travel. I know you are a big traveler and you get inspired by travel quite a bit. Can you talk a little bit about, and this is really for, for the benefit of those out there who are seeking creativity and seeking inspiration, what travel means to you? Well, for me, travel opens up a new world every time I go, wherever I go, be it to a city that I know very well. I just came back yesterday from Paris. Or be it be it to a brand new place where where in I said next week I'm going to another place I know well India, and then I'm going to South Africa. So have your eyes open and see every place old or new with new light because you've never seen that place like that before, guaranteed, right? Because we never repeat. Even if you go back to the same place, it's never under the same conditions. So for me. There is obviously the real excitement in a brand new place, but there's so much, let's say, merit to also revisiting a place because they can show you new angles. So it never gets old. Yeah, it never gets old. Going to your favorite restaurant that you knew, blah, 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 is really good, or discovering everything new you've never put this in your mouth before. Those are both awesome, right? The familiarity is great, but also just discovering something brand new. But I, I love traveling because I really like seeing the world from the, the standpoint of the people that actually live there. And that you can only do if you're physically there. And if you eat their food and, you know, you, you know what the worst I think are people who go and then carry on eating their own food. You know, people go to McDonald's in, in Asia or whatever, have a sausage in Mallorca where <laughs> you could be having a paella or whatever. And even if you only learn that you don't like their local food, well, at least you can, at least you know that because you tried it. So immersion, immersion in the culture. Yeah, yeah, immersion. And because that's only when, I think when you immerse yourself into a culture, that's when you realize, that's when it can teach you something. And that's when the walls come down too, the barriers. Yeah, and that's why you get inspired. It's like, it's all, it all just flows into each other. It's like you get immersed, then the walls come down, then you come up with new ideas because you're, you know, not just, getting up every morning, eating the same bagel and the same coffee on the corner. And, you know, the monotony for me is killing. I need to change it up. It's, it's, there are other people who are incredible and, and have a wealth of, of inspiration right from their own backyard, but that's not what drives me. To each his own, right? Wherever creative inspiration comes from. Yeah. Just tap into it and listen to your gut and let it yeah. be your driver. One of my favorite books, uh, it's a book by, it's called Hold Still by Sally Mann. And she's a photographer, one of the greats, really the greats. And she stayed in her backyard of Virginia, West Virginia, and photographed. And it's unbelievable what she does. It's mind-blowing for me because it's the opposite of me. I go bouncing around the world and find, find things. And she finds beauty, tranquility, and inspiration really in her own backyard and has so, done so. And I found that as a book, though, was incredible for me to read too, because I realized just how hard she works at her craft. And it re-inspired me to start shooting again. That's what I did the whole Egypt thing, was after reading this book and realizing that just to think that you are going to get the picture right or the, the thing right on the first time is actually quite arrogant. 
I was always like, well, if I didn't get it, I didn't get it and keep going. And she goes, she would go back again and again and again, take the same picture until it got right. And that was like, wow, okay, that is the level of craftsmanship that I want to get to. And I found just that hard work too. That's another thing. It's not enough just to be creative and to be, and to be good or talented. That's okay. That's how you start. But you don't go on unless you work at it. You've got to. The daily grind. <laughs> you need it. That's the only way you get better. If you want to be consistent, you got to just put in the work. Yep. That's exactly it. And that's what I really got sort of as a, a bit of a, a kick in the butt from reading that book. Because I was frustrated for a few years that I wasn't doing the same level of photography. Well, I wasn't doing the same amount of photos. So yeah, you weren't putting the work behind it. I wasn't putting the work behind it. So yeah, when I finally crank, crank out my camera, no, you're not going to take a masterpiece just because you picked up your camera. Good for you. You haven't picked it up in a year. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and that was good. That was a really good uh, thing for me to just, as you said, work on your craft. That That's how you get to the next level. Obviously, you wouldn't be doing that if you weren't already talented. But exactly. Exactly. It's not enough. Not if you want to live on it. Live by it, I should say. Yeah. Talent will take you so far. Yep. There's plenty of other talented people around. You got to just... Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's the only way you differentiate yourself. And people always think, oh, it's a break. I didn't get the break. I didn't, you know. No, no. Those people, they really work on it. And that's what, for me, like I said, it was a bit humbling where I was like, wow, she's one of the greats and she still goes and grinds it out like every day. (laughs) So... (laughs) That's a great lesson. Mm. It's a great lesson for me too. Yeah, good. Doesn't in, in everything <laughs> that we do, in everything we do, right? Yeah, it everything. doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't have to be art. In anything we do, it talent alone isn't enough. We got to just put in the work behind it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah, actually, it makes me think of exactly. So, if my you, know, you, you want to do meditating, you want to get better at meditating. Yeah. Well, you got to do it. Yeah. You know, you want to whatever, whatever the other things are that you want to do. But yeah. if you don't put in the work, you're not going to get better. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't happen by magic. No. Well, good. Well, thank you for these wonderful lessons that you've shared with me and with the audience and with, you know, with the creatives out there who have the same passion and inspiration that you have for your craft. So it's a great lessons. Is there anything else that you wanted to share before we close off our conversation? Believe in your own vision and just keep going. That's a key thing is, is when you see something that makes sense to you and you really believe it, keep going, then others will follow. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the Artisan Podcast. You can find out more about the Christian Fischbacher textiles at fischbacher.com or you can also follow them on Instagram at Christian Fischbacher. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Artisan Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Artisan Creative, a staffing and recruitment firm specializing in creative, marketing, and digital talent. You can find us online at artisancreative.com or via social channels at Artisan Creative. We look forward to connecting.